The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond, and I want to thank you for joining me today for another episode. Today I'm speaking with someone that, I guess by distance, is the furthest away I've ever spoken to somebody. Um, I'm on the East Coast in the United States, and Dr. David Rowland is just outside of Sydney, Australia. So I'm excited about that. I guess I'm talking to him today, but it's actually tomorrow for him. So that's kind of cool. And he's got a lot to offer. He's a psychologist that has a a very interesting past and has dealt with quite a bit of um, suffering himself. And through that suffering has learned a lot and has been able to translate some of those learnings, those teachings to other people and he delivers it in just such a pleasant manner. It's very easy to take in and digest, and hopefully you could find value out of the conversation and maybe find a way to uh, look at the suffering in your life and find some kind of opportunities that might be hidden and you might just need uh, a new way of looking at things to find something positive from them. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I know I did, and um, thanks again for tuning in. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond, and I want to thank you for joining me today for another episode. As always, I'm very grateful for your listening. Today's guest is coming coming in from Australia. His name is Dr. David Rowland. He's a psychologist and he's an author. He's written How I Rescued My Brain, The Confident Performer, and his latest work, The Power of Suffering, Growing through life crisis. David, please say hello to the Mindful Movement audience. Good morning or good afternoon or good whatever it is. Oh, I guess it's morning for (laughs) you now. It's upside down for us, yes. Tomorrow for you already. It's tomorrow already. (laughs) So I guess, can you tell me who wins the ball games tonight? It doesn't work that way, does it? No, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, I want to thank you for... Uh, joining and I'm grateful that you reached out to us so you could share some of your wisdom with our audience. It seems like your background is very relevant as far as, um, you know, all the help that is needed right now around the world. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, your, your gifts and hearing some of your work. I've checked you out a little bit after you guys reached out to us and listened to some of your talks and it was very inspiring. Uh, maybe we could start off by 
uh, if you could just kind of bring the audience up to date on how you got to where you are now that led you to, to write these books and do the work that you're doing now. Sure. It's great to, to spend some time with you, Les. Um, I guess I started when I was 16 years old, when I discovered a book on psychoanalysis by Sigmund Freud. And I, there was something about discovering that book. It was in my mother's uh, personal collection of books. Uh, there was something about that book that just really stood out for me. And what it was, was that I realized that there's this whole subconscious world in the mind. There's a part of the mind that we don't know about, but actually influences our behavior in ways that we don't even realize it's doing. And that's when I thought, well, I just want to, I want to study the mind. And I would study it in a conventional way and go to university and do psychology. So that's what I did. So from about the age of 16, I knew what I wanted to do. And I've been on that path ever since. But of course, as we all know, life comes along and, and brings up unexpected events, some good, some bad. And, you know, I've plowed my way through all of those. And it's brought me to where I am today. So I've worked with every type of client. I started off working in the prison system. So I came across, you know, people that I've never come across before in my life, which of course was a huge eye-opening experience. And then uh, because I've always been a musician, an amateur musician mostly, I, uh, when I was doing my PhD research, I thought I'd really like to help musicians with stage fright because I'd experienced that sometimes myself in performing in front of an audience. So I thought as a psychologist, I can bring a lot of the techniques of psychology and managing anxiety to performance situations. And so I did my PhD research and wrote the book, The Confident Performer, which was really well received around the world, particularly in teaching institutions. And then I went along and did my clinical psychology practice. I've had several private practices, but also did a lot of forensic work. So I worked for the criminal court, the children's court doing assessments, because I liked teasing out what's really going on and writing about that to a court or to other professionals in a way they could understand. But what caught up with me after about 20 years was hearing all these bad stories that happened to people and sometimes being in some life-threatening situations or situations where it could have been life-threatening. And I developed post-traumatic stress disorder myself from those experiences. And at that time, I started to notice that I didn't want to go to work and I couldn't understand that. As I said, from age 16, I just knew what I wanted to do and I loved working with people and understanding the mind. So I spoke to a more senior psychologist in my area and he said, I think you've got trauma from your work. You've just heard too many bad stories. So then I thought, well, I'll take six months off of my practice because I was self-employed. I could do that. We had savings. And this was just uh, pre the global financial crisis in 2008. Uh, but I didn't get well again after six months. It was clear that I needed a lot of therapy. I needed more time. And then around that time of the global financial crisis, in the aftermath, when you know, we lost our life savings, um, I got a stroke out of the blue. 
So I got a left-sided stroke. It knocked out a quarter of my visual field. It also affected my auditory processing. So having conversations like this at that time would have been really difficult. I would have forgotten by now what the question was you asked me, even if I could string an answer together. How old were you when that happened? I was uh, 51, so I was classed what they call a young stroke. And, uh, you know, young strokes happen to about a fifth of the population. And that, that could be children, it could be, you know, adolescents, it could be young adults. And in my case, you know, we had a family with three children still going to school. So it was incredibly, incredibly disruptive. So that embarked me on how do I get my brain working again? And so I investigated a lot of neuroscience, meditation, uh, brain training, and also movement as a way of, of healing. And then more recently, I discovered that I changed as a person after going through all these years of what I would call suffering. And I thought, actually, I really like the new person I've become. Why is that? You know, what's going on here? And I thought, well, maybe it's to do with the suffering I've experienced. Let's take a dive into that and see what's going on. What is suffering, you know, from a contemporary point of view? And what is it doing to us that changes us in good ways? It's not like I would like all those things to happen again. But given that they happen, they've happened and I didn't have any control over it, what can I make out of that that's not only uh, survival, but it's transformative? So is suffering potentially an opportunity for us to transform in new ways? Doesn't necessarily take away grief if you've lost a child. Doesn't necessarily take away a divorce if you've had a divorce. It doesn't necessarily take away, you know, a physical disability if you've lost the ability to, to use some part of your body. But there's another part of you that can grow from that experience and so I decided to do an investigation into other people who'd been through life upending experiences and find out had they changed and how had they changed and did they actually like the changes that they'd come to? And the short answer is yes. And there's a whole field called post-traumatic growth and uh, Richard Kadeshki, who's a, uh, an American professor is one of the grandfathers of that. And I spent a couple of days with him when he was visiting Australia and talked through a lot of these issues with him. Hmm. I like that post-traumatic growth. So, well, that's, that's quite a story. So it's almost like, um, you're not looking to, you're, you're, you're seeing a challenge as an opportunity. And, and then diving in and seeing where it takes you. It's interesting outlook where you feel like, well, I like this person that this suffering has created. Um, yeah. I, I, I guess I could share something similar. Like I, I got sick a few years ago that was triggered by a tick bite and got Lyme. And for, it created like quite a bit of suffering. But over time, like I remember going back to the field where I was, where I got bit and like kneeling down in gratitude for the tick, for the meadow, for the whole experience because of what was born out of it. Yes. What, that wasn't like an easy process and I had no one kind of holding my 
can't tell me to do that is just it's like the only way through you know is to find the positive in the experience or at least you know get some lesson from the experience so that's interesting so you were hearing like as part of your day-to-day job like just awful stories just as a nature as of the position so not that you were taking on the experience of like the victims but just seeing it and thinking about it in itself is stressful and then i guess over time getting those repetitions it's like chronic stress yeah if you're not aware of could show up and obviously could show up in the body somehow. Yes. And I think that's exactly right, Les. You've touched on a lot of great points there. And just to your last point about the body, there's, there was a book by written by uh, called the body keeps the score right. or the body remembers, you know, there's a couple of books and, and essentially, you know, any life experience we have is, is encoded in the body even on a cellular level, you know, good and bad experiences have some chemical effect. And what I discovered is that trauma is held in the body. And one of the reasons it's held in the body is that if I'm listening to your story and you're telling me about your experience of Lyme disease and how it was really tough and that sort of thing, if I'm caring and I'm interested in your story, I'm going to feel physically in my body some of the experiences that you had because we have innate resonance circuits in our body so the way we read somebody else's emotions is not only from what we see and from what we hear but what internally our experience is in response to them and we register and we say oh that that's they must feel sad i'm feeling feelings of sadness when i'm hearing your story or i'm feeling feelings of joy when i hear your story So we're actually experiencing, if you like, your experience, but in my body. And as you said, you know, when that's happening day in, day out, which it was as part of my normal job routine, uh, that was building up. I think it's, you know, it's like one cut after another. Not individual cuts aren't bad. They're fine. You can handle that. But when you're getting cut every day and it adds up, And what happened for me was there was a particularly bad case of a woman coming in for child, sexual child abuse or abuse in every form, actually. And I just thought, this is dreadful. I I actually don't want to listen to this. And it was after that that I realised that something, uh, I I wasn't well. And, you know, with your Lyme experience, you said it wasn't easy. And I think when one of the functions of suffering, and I make a distinction between pain and suffering, pain is a natural response to an injury, whether it's a physical injury or an emotional injury, but pain motivates us like nothing else to do something about it. That's the function of pain. And I think the gift, the potential gift of suffering is it offers us this incredible motivation to find some new way through, whether that's opening up to new possibilities or it's thinking in new ways or it's extending a hand to somebody and say, I need help, you know, when you never would have before. This is the the gift of potential gift of suffering is this incredible impetus 
to find a way out. And when you're in that state, you're not looking to grow. You're just trying to survive and to ease the pain and get rid of the suffering. Right. But now, you know, people are, I guess, because of what's happened this past year, it's been a weird year. And there's obviously a lot of suffering and collective suffering going on. But it's been interesting to see different outlooks that different people take. And, you know, in many cases, I guess it brings out the worst in some people um, where I wouldn't say like their character flaws are exaggerated, but like it, it could take you down to maybe just lower expressions of yourself that if you weren't so stressed, you know, you would never, you know, it would be easier to not go there. And then, you know, you see some people that just, not that they're looking for opportunities or silver linings, just have a, you know, it's just another, it's just another obstacle like no other, like any other obstacle. And they're, they have a approach, a mindset where, you know, they're, they're pride, they're, they've built a practice of looking at obstacles as opportunities and so forth. I heard somebody recently say something that, you know, that the world is kind of going through a transformation of some sort now. And, and one day we'll look back and be like, do you remember how awful it was before 2020? Mm-hmm. You know, like, like um, you know, this is what's happening is something that's needed for, you know, the, the human race as a whole to wake up collectively on some level to turn some corner and in, this, in, the, in the larger picture that it's really important and meaningful and good um, and positive. You know, it's hard for some people that's really hard to see, especially because, you know, we're all suffering to different degrees. Some people have lost, um, you know, more than others through this Mm -hmm. process that we've all experienced. One thing that um, you mentioned that, I guess, most people I think are very unpracticed at helping another person when they are suffering. And, you know, you get these habits where like, I'll give you an example. Um, My cat who I loved was accidentally killed on a driveway and it sucked for me. I love, I love animals. I love everything, you know, but I really love cats and I love that cat. And I had it for like 12 years and I told a friend and it's interesting. Like the first thing out of his mouth was like, you think that's bad? My neighbor's friend dog died on the, they drove over their dog, their dog. Like, and just like said it in this way, like, trust me, it could be much worse. <laughs> and, and then like, I, I noticed another person in my life, very close loved one say, well, at least you have your, your family that loves you. And like you, at least you have this. And, and then I, I, I remember like telling my mother and my mother's response was different that she was the only one that didn't either like make it about them 
or say something along the lines is at least you have this. It was like she like held space. Like she showed, you know, love on a more unconditional level where it's just that sucks. He was an awesome cat. I feel for you. You must be hurting. And I, in that process, like I realized we're never taught how to really help a friend or loved one when they are experiencing something significant, whether it's loss or grief or suffering on some level. In your experience, do you, do you have um, like a template or some tips to share where we could turn to the people in our lives because everybody is suffering from something like during this, like how do we, if we want to show up in the world the, the best way we can for the people in our lives, what are some strategies or tips when we're, you know, face to face with the people in our life or over Zoom or call, whatever, where we can, we can help them manage their, you know, obviously we can't take away their suffering, but help them in that moment. Yeah. Well, that's a great question, Les. And thank you for giving the example of your cats and the different responses. Um, it's a, it's a classic example of how people are not being human with you. They're not being present with you except for your mother. And, you know, in the first instance, when something happens like that, see, I'm not a particularly, I'm a dog person. I'm not so much of a cat person. So uh, my, if you, if you, your cat died and I said, Les, I'm really sorry about your cat dying. How are you feeling? I'm not coming from a, a place where I, where I love cats. I'm coming from a place where I love you. And I'm, ex I'm noticing that you're very distressed or you're grief stricken by the loss of your cat. So in the first instance, I'm just wanting to show up and saying, hey, I'm here and I recognize that you're suffering. And the, the second thing is that I want to understand what that's like for you. If I'm not a cat lover, I'm not going to get that same, I'm not immediately going to get that sense. So I would say, well, how is that for you, Les? And you, you tell me, and the way I'm listening to you in just an open, non-judgmental way, and non-judgmental is really critical here, shows you that I'm interested in you and your experience. Once again, I'm not so interested in the cat. I don't like the idea of if your cat suffered or was in pain, but you know, things die, people die, animals die but I'm interested in you. So I'm listening to your experience. And we also want to know that your experience is individual to you. So I may have known somebody else whose cat died who was also a cat lover. And maybe for some reason they seem to get over it very quickly, but you don't. I'm not going to judge you for that. So this is your experience. So I'm not going to presume that you would take a certain amount of time to to overcome the loss of your cat. I'm just going to be there, walk alongside you, check in with you. The other thing we would do when something happens unexpected for somebody that causes suffering is that we just want to do anything practical that needs doing. They might be in shock or in deep grief 
and we might just want to do any practical things, keep them safe. Um, there's, a story in, there's a story in my book about Morris. Morris uh, was blinded at the age of 12 in the schoolyard, and then that was just the start. He, uh, his parents died both young, so he was without parents. And uh, then, then another, then his brother died from a shooting accident. And he was just, he's in his twenties and he's thinking, my life is just one tragedy after another. What, what next could go wrong? And people would come to him and they just wouldn't get the depth of his despair. Uh, he felt, he never actually felt suicidal, but he didn't want to wake up in the mornings. And then one friend who he hadn't seen for a long time, and she'd learned about the death of his, his father, who was the last one to die, came up to him and said, Morris, you've had a really tragic life, and just gave him a big hug. What she, and he said she was the first one that recognised the despair and the grief that he was experiencing. What she didn't try and do was try and fix it. So what we, what we tend to do when something happens to people where there's nothing obviously uh, fixable, like in the case of your cat, we can't fix that and, and we can't bring your cat back. So we be present with you. If it's appropriate, we give you a hug, we listen to your story. And often people in those moments need to tell their story over and over. And that retelling of the story is a way of making sense of it, getting new perspectives on it. So we hear the person's story over and over again. So the important things are we don't try and fix it when it's not fixable. We don't judge the person's experience about how they should be responding or how long they should take to get over it. And we bring our human presence to it in a way that's about understanding their experience, uh, just listening, open listening, and walking alongside them rather than giving them advice about what they should do. The, the caveat there is if they're going to do anything that could be unsafe, you know, highly risky, then we might step in. Right. And of course, if somebody's very suicidal, well, then we would want to provide some extra supports and help. So I guess bringing it back to what you were combining that with what you were talking earlier about what you experienced with, with your job that I guess you did for a while as a, um, I guess a forensic psychologist um, that you ran into trouble with. I mean, on some level, you're kind of, I would, I don't know if taking on the, suffering of the other is the right word but like you mentioned there's a you know there's a physical correlate to all the thoughts we have there's you know molecules of those emotions so like when we just the act of thinking about that person's experience and hearing a story we're taking on something so how like let's say there's you know above average suffering in your life situation the people around you and you want to show up for them like you want to be a good brother or sister or cousin or son or father or whatever to those to those folks in your life at the same time you need to have some kind of boundary like where you're 
still taking care of yourself and you're not like just throwing your self under there by, you know, trying to be there for everybody. Like, how do you, I guess, find a balance or how do, how do you create a boundary where you can practice an awareness of when that threshold is being compromised or jeopardized mm. where if you keep going and you keep giving like your your cup's gonna be empty yeah and yourself a disservice yeah you've got to you've got to look after yourself and one of one of the things that uh one of the things that we can do when somebody's intense suffering is not be afraid of their suffering you know, somebody is in great grief. Can we be with them while they're in that intense grief and not lose ourselves? I think that goes to the heart of your question. And in my case, I was doing that quite frequently. So I was having to do it um, more often than, you know, the average person might be doing. So there's a few things there, Les. One, one is that understanding a difference between empathy and compassion. And this is something I only realized uh, when I, uh, and it's written in, in how I rescued my brain. When I met a, a neuroscientist, Tanya Singer from Germany, and she put a Buddhist monk in, in a functional MRI machine. This is in the early days of functional MRI and Matthew Ricard, who's uh, written some very successful books. He, he, uh, she asked him to uh, do a meditation in the MRI machine where he imagined or he felt all the suffering in the world. And this is a highly experienced meditator. So, you know, he can train his mind and direct his mind very, very clearly and efficiently. And after he came out, after about an hour, he said, oh, I feel terrible. <laughs> experiencing all the suffering of the world. <laughs> and she said, oh, that's very interesting. And they talked about it. And he said, do you mind if I go back and do my normal meditation where I use, I offer compassion to the world? And so she said, sure, that would be interesting. So he went back in and he did his meditation, which is offering compassion to suffering in the world. And he came out and he was feeling much better. And she said, that was fascinating. She said, a different part of your brain was operating when you were doing the compassion meditation than when you were doing what you might think of as the empathy meditation, where we just put ourselves in the other person's shoes, we lose ourselves in their experience. And she discovered that there's a different neural mechanism operating in that compassion mindset compared to empathy. So if I'm going to understand your experience with your cat and the death of your cat and the sadness that you, you experience, I need some empathy. I need to feel like I was saying, I need to feel that physical bodily response in myself to appreciate what you're experiencing, but I don't want to stay there. So the big discovery that I made and that others have made since is that we need to move out of empathy into compassion. I have experienced uh, states of intense compassion and it really does feel completely different to empathy. And the, if, if I'm feeling compassion for you and your loss, 
I am feeling that, but I'm not being dragged down by it. Now, this sounds paradoxical. How can I feel your, your grief or your suffering, but not be pulled down by that? And it seems that we need to train to get into this compassionate mindset. And there's a loving kindness meditation, for example, where we um, imagine somebody we love or something it could be an animal or it could be a person. And we inculcate that feeling of loving kindness. And then we bring it to ourselves. So we transfer it to ourselves because often it's easier to bring a sense of loving kindness to, or compassion to somebody else, but harder to put it onto ourselves. So we actually practice this. And as we practice offering compassion for ourselves, we can actually be with another person suffering, but not be pulled down by it. But we actually need to train to do that. Uh, some people are naturally compassionate people and get into that mode fairly easily. But I don't think the majority of us do. Um, so with, with your example of how do folks be with somebody else who's going through suffering, they do it as much as they can and then they may need to withdraw for periods of time until they get used to the idea of being with the person but not allowing themselves to be pulled right down with that. This is difficult for people that are carers, full-time carers. Um, and that's why they need respite and they need other outlets outside of their caring role to bring them back out of that state of being, you know, empathically with the person they're caring for. So how would you, let's say somebody says, well, I, I don't feel like I'm as compassionate as I want to be. And I want to know myself as a compassionate person. And I'm in an experience where someone is suffering and I want to offer, I want to be the compassionate friend and I don't know how. What would be like the thought sequence that they think of intentionally to in the moment practice being a more compassionate, you know, practice compassionate so that you know, they become a more compassionate person. Because as you say, it's not as natural for everybody. And maybe that's because of their, you know, their own traumas or whatever in their history that's not allowed them to get to that point. But if someone that wants to actively work on their compassion, how do you do it? There's a few uh, ways people or resources people can access. One is, is, is the standard Buddhist teachings on compassion and the compassion. You don't have to be a Buddhist to get to reap the benefits of this, but the com compassion practices that the Buddhists often teach. Um, some of these teachings have been uh, contemporized by people like Christian Neff and Chris Germa who, who uh, developed self-compassion practices. Uh, also Paul Gilbert in, in the UK, who's developed a therapy called Compassion Focus Therapy. And uh, if you're a listener, you can go to the Compassionate Foundation website in the UK, or you can look up Christian Neff uh, or Chris Germa. Um, also, Tara Brock is another teacher who teaches uh, compassion. A oh, big fan so, of Tara. She's actually kind of right down the road from us. 
Oh, goodness. So there are a lot of people actually that will offer, you know, tools or resources. But essentially what we're doing when we're practicing self-compassion, and this is, we need to, uh, as you said before, we need to look, take care of ourselves if we're going to be taking care of somebody else. Uh, and we think of ourselves then as a loved one. How would I treat a loved one who's going through some suffering? So I've got to apply that same idea to myself. And so this is uh, recognizing that I have limitations, recognizing that I have downtimes, recognizing that I need time out, um, and applying these uh, particular, that idea, but also practices like loving kindness for the self. Great. It's like a, it's a training, like you would train <laughs> for any other skill. Yeah, to get better at it, you got you got to practice. Um, so you you mentioned, well, you didn't mention, but I noticed when I was uh, reading about you, David, it says that you use less conventional ways of healing, and it mentions neuroscience and then also dance and expressive arts. Can you dive, dive into that a little bit, how you use like expressive arts for a healing purpose? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, well, you and I are men, Les, and uh, we may know from our experience with other men that some men find it quite difficult to express what they're feeling or what they're thinking. Uh, and that can be because they're not really used to monitoring their internal world. You know, I often use the expression, you know, knowing what the internal weather is doing. Uh, so the first step is we've actually got to go inwards and notice what we're, what we're experiencing and name it. Like, if I've got a feeling or a sensation on my body, I've got to name it. I've got to give it a name uh, for myself, but also to express that to somebody else. Whether you're male or female, people range in their abilities to be able to express what they're experiencing, even when they're in touch with themselves. And it's been found that a lot of expressive arts are another way of expressing what you're feeling that may not be in straight out words or in a conversation like we're having. So, you know, visual arts painting has been used a lot with war veterans where they paint, you know, you've probably seen pictures where uh, somebody's been through a traumatic experience and they do paintings and the paintings can look really gruesome and awful, but they're actually getting it out there on the page. And that process in itself is a way of releasing some of their emotions and getting out their feelings um, out of themselves onto something else. Um, I came across an example with uh, music therapy where I was talking to a music therapist and she said she had a father whose wife had died tragically and they had a daughter and, and he just found it really difficult to express his grief to his daughter. And uh, the music therapist was explaining that 
he wanted to really write a song about his grief and sing this song to his daughter. But he wasn't a songwriter, but he could play guitar. And of course, you know, he could sing. So she helped him write out a melody. He wrote the words and she helped him write out a melody and some chord changes to, to go with the melody. And he sang that song to his daughter. And that was the opening of the conversation that they could have. He was able to express in, in music and words what he couldn't express some other way. And we all know that poets and poetry, writing poetry or hearing poets, is another way of accessing things that doesn't seem to be accessible somewhere else. In my particular instance, uh, I, you know, I've used music as a way of expressing feeling, but um, in particular, what I've done more recently after my brain injury, one of the things I learned was that uh, certain activities activate the brain. I realized that, you know, I've still got some dead neurons in my brain from, from my stroke. They're never going to come back. But what I want to create is new connections with the neurons that are there. And any activity that uses a lot of parts of the brain in a way that they have to integrate uh, will do that. And so dancing offers movement and body-mind coordination. It also requires memory. It's also emotion because you're responding to the emotion of the music. There's a lot of aspects in dance uh, that come together for it to be successful. So I started using five rhythms classes because a friend recommended them, where you go through five different tempos of music or five different feeling types of music. And the, and the, the, the class teacher will, will, will tell you to allow your feet to move first. You want to take your head out of the equation, you know, not what I should be doing, right. but actually allow my body to respond to the music. Uh, rather than, you know, self-consciously trying to do some cool moves. And I noticed that as I did that and became more comfortable with that, there was this spiraling feeling of energy coming out of my body. And at first I thought I was imagining this, but I, kept, I went back to next week to the class and the week after, and it happened every time. Every time I took my head out of the equation and I moved from the feet up, this energy would spiral out. And I realized that's the trauma and the grief and despair from the years of experiences that I've had unwinding out of me. And over time, I started to experience immense joy and dancing and movement just became just an exercise in joy. And then I've always loved the Latin rhythm. And so I thought, now I'm ready to take up some partner dancing because that adds an extra element of, of um, brain activity. But also I wanted to start holding a woman again because I was divorced by this stage. And uh, I developed a practice, you know, dancing salsa. Uh, for me in the first year, it was, I could hardly remember any of the moves we were taught from one week to another. The second year, I started to remember a few of the moves. By the third year, I could remember enough moves to actually go on the dance floor and last for about an hour before I thought, I've got to get out of here. So this was part of like, a, this was part of your plan, like a strategy to actually rebuild your brain though, after- Exactly. Huh. Yeah, I did it as a brain uh, healing exercise. And then last year, I went to Cuba on a dance tour 
where we where we danced, uh, you know, did classes two hours in the morning at different dance schools. And you know, now I'm a really competent salsa dancer, and I can dance other other forms as well. I'm learning zouk at the moment, which is Brazilian lambada, um, and I love dance and I love having a partner. Uh, so it's become very social and it's very joyful. And of course, you know, dancing is actually a great form of physical fitness as well. Oh, definitely. But I didn't, I wasn't expecting any of those outcomes. I was doing it just to heal my brain to begin with. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I listened to, I think it was a neuroscientist, some kind of brain training specialist, and they were going over little, little strategies to like, I guess, take advantage of the neuroplasticity that our brain has. It's, um, I mean, it's just in constant adaptation, basically. So you want to constantly be providing sensory input, stimulation, and so forth. And like one of the strategies was um, just to start brushing your teeth with like your non-dominant hand. Mm -hmm. And at first, it's just unbelievably awkward. And like, it took so much concentration to, to get through it like once it was awful, but then, you know, within a week, it was, you know, probably 80% as good as the dominant hand. And recently I've been doing something. My, my son is really into skateboarding and I feel like I'm a little old to be skateboarding, but I've been doing it just to have something to connect with them. Because if I don't skateboard with him or I take him skateboarding, I might not see him very much because he's 14. And 14-year-old boys generally are not interested in hanging out with their father. But in the context of skateboarding, he'll, he'll hang. So, so I've been getting on the board, and I'm just mostly just trying not to get hurt, but I'm um, slowly progressing. But something I've done is um, I've taken that same – idea that I heard about like brushing your teeth with the other hand and you know when you get on a skateboard I'm sure it's the same with like snowboarding or surfing you always have like a natural stance like you know or you know boxers will have a natural stance where you know a certain foot is in the back and a certain foot is in the front it's always going to be that way that's what's going to feel right for you mm -hmm. and then you can switch and when you switch it's terrifying. Like, so I normally will skateboard with my left foot is my lead foot. So I'll make a point almost every session to spend some amount of time doing it opposite, doing it. I guess in skateboard world, it, they call it switch. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of crazy. Like your brain, you could feel your brain doing so much work to just try to stay on the board. And it really gives me a different appreciation when I see, you know, very um, experienced, skillful skaters, like being able to do kind of the same tricks, no matter which way they're standing. And I'm, when, I, when I feel internally how different it is, it's kind of crazy, but it's interesting. Like I'm intentionally doing it now to like, oh, let me get my brain work in. I'm, I'm not gonna get better. It's, skateboarding for this but i mean it and it's it's like mentally it's way more mentally exhausting than it is physically which makes me feel like we we definitely have a role to play like we have a say 
in the health of our brain. There's things we could do. It's not out of our control. There's things, uh, it makes me think like, what else can I be doing that I could kind of sneak in to my routine that doesn't add more, you know, where I don't have to, uh, at the cost of, you know, something else schedule wise or logistically. But uh, that's interesting. So you're using dance to get that mind body coordination and that activity and all these qualities to help kind of bring the brain back on online. Are there any other things that you do on the regular or in the realm of expressive arts that you do for that purpose, that intention? Yes, I do. Um, and I would just say, just want to add one thing to your skateboarding examples. Great. Um, the brain loves novelty. So if we just remember doing things in a novel way, whether it's brushing our teeth with the non-dominant hand or taking a different stance on the skateboard, if you do a walk in the morning and you always go the same route, you know, like actually do it the other way around, for example. Um, if we can create novelty in little ways, that's actually healthy for the brain. Uh, but for myself, um, you know, I'm an ocean swimmer. I live near the coast, so I swim in the ocean. And also I meditate every morning. Uh, you know, one of the things I discovered is that mindfulness and mindfulness meditation particularly enhance our ability to manage our emotions and also improve the quality of our attention. So I still get a little bit of uh, mental fatigue from my brain injury. And that's very common long-term symptom. So it means that when I'm focusing, I want to have, you know, really good quality focus. So the mindfulness meditation that I do helps me with that. The other great thing for the brain is exercise, aerobic exercise. Uh, the brain loves oxygen and glucose. And uh, when we exercise, um, it creates more uh, a, a neurotropic factor called brain-derived neurotropic factor, which actually is like the cement of, of new connections in the brain. So when we do something new, like you know, you trying a different stance on the skateboard or doing a different skateboard trick, uh, that night, the brain-derived neurotropic factor is helping to cement the new learnings that you've got. So they're still there the next day. And exercise increases the production of that. So it's in fact been shown that people that exercise are smarter than people who don't exercise because they remember better the things that they're learning. So students who exercise are going to have a better memory for things that they're learning than students who don't. So I think uh, mental training techniques like meditation or mindfulness, um, doing activities like you're doing, you know, anything that creates new novelty. I'm also learning Spanish at the moment as a, as a brain training exercise, but also I'd like to learn to speak Spanish anyway. And uh, exercise, any form of exercise and mix the exercise up. Don't do exactly the same thing over and over. If you're a yoga practitioner, you just do different poses and different styles of yoga rather than doing exactly the same routine all the time. What's your meditation practice like? 
Uh, I've, I've tried and I've been through a range of them. And if people read my book, How I Rescued My Brain, it goes into uh, how I found out about that and the neuroscience behind that. And, you know, initially I tried Tibetan Buddhism because I met the Dalai Lama and Oh, really? I thought, well, I'll, do, I'll do this. <laughs> I didn't intend to meet him. But <laughs> I happened to be standing in the right place at the right time when he came by. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I tried Tibetan uh, Buddhism, which uses a lot of visualization and chanting. Chanting is another uh, wonderful way of calming the mind uh, using sound and vocalization. Uh, but now I probably use more the breath as a focus and also those compassion uh, activities. Like I have, um, uh, I've got a compassionate wise person that I can visualize who comes and sits beside me. And, you know, if I, if I feel the need for him, he, he comes, it's, it's not, it's not a real person. It's something that came out of my, uh, an exercise, a training that I did where to, to create a compassionate other. Nice. A little imaginary friend. Yeah. Does, does he have a name? <laughs> Don't just tell everybody about him. <laughs> uh, he doesn't actually have a name either. That's funny. So uh, your latest book, The Power of Suffering, Growing Through Life Crisis, when did that come out? Uh, that came out in March. Okay. So just be just before all the events. Perfect timing, huh? <laughs> what are some of the uh, key points that you'd like to maybe share with the audience? I think, uh, first of all, you know, suffering is something that's inevitable when, you know, something totally unexpected happens to us that we didn't want, you know, like a pandemic and all the effects of the pandemic. So we can't necessarily change the circumstances. So the first step is acceptance. Okay, this has happened. This is how it is now. If I can't change it, I need to have acceptance. What open then to new possibilities, new ways of thinking or new ways of doing things. And that can take time, you know. So we're all always going to experience disruption when, you know, an event that we hadn't foreseen happens. And we're going to feel the stress at that time. So remember you were talking about the grief you experienced after your cat. And I was talking about how pain is a great motivator. The stress is a huge motivator. When we're distressed, we, we try and find ways of calming or we find new opportunities or ways out of it. Unfortunately, distress is necessary for us to grow. So when we're in that distressing period, uh, we can just remind ourselves there can be a voice that says, okay, this is awful, but it's actually going to lead to something good. Um, but I may not be able to see that right now. So people who are going through very different, difficult life circumstances at the moment can remind themselves that it'll change. It won't stay this way. And actually new things will come out of it that I can't foresee right now. There could be new people that come into my life new opportunities or new ways of thinking about things. Uh, one of the ways when people often grow is in a spiritual dimension, start to think beyond themselves. And that's a really good sign if people grow in spiritual ways. And that can be something that surprises people, how they grow in that way. Yeah, that, I could speak to that. I feel like I've definitely upped my spiritual practice throughout this time. Part of that is having more 
time to work on it maybe, but also just, um, you know, seeing, spending more time thinking about the, the big picture and like the perspective of how little we are in the scheme of things and how things aren't as important as we may make them to be in our mind. And it's been helpful. And then like really just connecting with nature and, and there are, there are, you know, you say finding new ways to look at things just the other day, like I, I I guess I'm like a health enthusiast and I allocate my dollars accordingly. And I feel like the things that provide a lot of potential value health wise, I'm willing to spend a lot of money on. Mm. And, um, and I've gotten in a habit like with food, I think food is like, uh, the quickest way we could interact with our health today. Um, mm. it, like if you dramatically change your food, you generally see a dramatic change in some kind of outcome. But because I've been thinking that way for so long, I've, I've continued to search for like the food that I think is the best for me, which is time like gotten expensive because I find that like the highest quality food is just more expensive. So yeah. I've come to grips with like, okay, I'm willing, this is an investment in my health and this is what I'll allocate my money and I'll wear cheap white t-shirts and not f- drive fancy cars and I'll just, I'll eat my money. And, um, and just the other day I was thinking like, what if, if everything crashed, if my, like my business, I'm a gym owner was closed down by the government. It's not picked up very quickly. I don't know if I'm ever going to earn a real income from this business that I've put a decade of my life into. And like, I spent time just thinking like, how would I manage my food if money was dramatically different? And it was just like a thought experience experiment of thinking things differently. Like I'm used to this where I'll, I'll, I don't even look at the price tag if I think it's good for me. Mm. And I was like, well, what if I was confined to like, this amount per month, what would I do? How would I do it? How many times a day would I eat? What would I prioritize? And I found it to be really useful and just teaching myself like, you know, there's more than one way to do this. Like there's another way to look at this situation. And um, I actually had a recent experience where I went hiking by myself in the woods for like six days and I brought my food for the week. I was gonna have no access once I got there. And, um, you know, it forced me to like really minimize because that right at my house, like I have all my favorites and they're always fully stocked and like, all right, I got to fit everything in this very small container. And like, it just changes the way you think, like your approach mentally. And I find that to be really helpful to just kind of break out of our norm a little bit and our habits and just look at things from a different angle. And you're right. Like I feel like in the suffering that's going on now, there's probably so many things in our lives that we could just take this different approach mentally. If we're open to it, if we're looking for different ways to look at it, as opposed to just getting upset that things aren't the way that we wanted or, you know, our expectation. 
And I guess that does begin with just acceptance. Like, all right, this is the way it is right now. And you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to be happy about it, but you have, yeah, to, you don't have to like it. You it's have nice. to accept that that's what it is. Otherwise you're setting yourself up for like a bunch of internal conflict in your mind going forward. Yeah. And that's the suffering. That's how we create suffering when we don't accept how things are and think, okay, this is how it is. What can I make of this? So let's say your income drops you can't buy the foods that you normally would want to buy and you keep going into the supermarket or the store and you think, Oh, I can't buy those foods. And you stand in front of them and you think, I can't have <laughs> you drool at the window. Like I want to eat that. I can't. Yeah. That That's would not be a good suffering. solution. <laughs> That's great. Well, um, I want to respect your time. Uh, what, is there anything else you'd like to add David to the, to this for the listeners that you think might be, useful or something you want to share that you're working on or something that's inspired you recently? Oh, I think uh, just, just that message that suffering shows us what we don't need as well as what we do. And I think, you know, the pandemic, people talk about silver linings. I think one of the things that we realize that we really need is connection. That's connection with people, other people, connection with nature and connection with ourselves. So when we're not so busy, we can actually know what's going on inside ourselves and remind ourselves of what's valuable for us and therefore the people we love and for our community. Yeah, that's perfectly said. Beautiful, man. I appreciate that. I want to thank you for reaching out to me and having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and for the listeners out there, if you want to reach out and learn more about Dr. Roland, how was the best way for them to find out more about you? Uh, well, I'll send you a link if you like, Les, you can put on your show notes. Will but do. otherwise, uh, just look up my name and I've got a website and, you know, the books are available through the usual booksellers online. Awesome. Yeah, I have not read any of your books yet, so I'm looking forward to it. I'll start with this, this recent one. Well, uh, the Mindful Movement audience, thanks again for tuning in. Again, I'm really appreciative for you guys sticking around and listening to this. I hope you got some value out of it. Um, I sure did. And, you know, uh, stay tuned for more episodes. And I hope everybody has just an outstanding day. Well, one more thank you for the listeners for tuning into that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and got some value out of it. If you are enjoying these conversations, please show your support by offering a five-star review on your podcast player, wherever you're, you're receiving this content. And if you have any guests in mind that you'd like to hear interviewed, then send them my way and I'll do my best to book that on the show. Uh, also, if you're looking for additional ways to support the mindful movement, Sarah and I have off recently offered a membership that offers some exclusive content and maybe a, a greater sense of community. So if you're interested in that, the link is in the description. And if you have any questions about what you saw today in this interview, then please send them my way and I'll do my best to answer them or get Dr. Roland to answer if possible. So thanks again for tuning in. Really appreciate uh, you guys' support through this process. And I hope you're enjoying these episodes and stay tuned for more.